Welcome to Adult Ed Fall 2016. I'm so glad you are all able to be here today. We have a big year coming up, and uh, the theme of this year's adult education is how do we as Christians navigate the seas of change? And each program is going to address uh, that sea of change in their particular field, and I hope you will continue to come and learn and grow as we uh, seize upon the seas of change amongst us. So let us start with a word of prayer. Dear God, as we begin a new Christian education year, we pause to give thanks for our church, for our congregation, for the openness and sharing that will take place, and for God's word to be shared, studied, discovered, and rediscovered. Change is a part of our everyday lives. Change can feel uncertain and stressful, yet a foundation of our theology is the church reformed, always being reformed. May God continue to bless us and this church as we navigate the many seas of change. And in that today marks the 15th anniversary of the terrorist attack on the United States, let us remember the words of President Bush on that day. Quote, Tonight I ask for your prayers for all those who grieve, for the children whose worlds have been shattered, for all whose sense of safety and security has been threatened, and I pray they will be comforted by a power greater than any of us, spoken through the ages in Psalm 23. Even though... I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I fear no evil, for you are with me. Amen. Now we have uh, Michael Donnelly here to introduce our speaker, General Cartwright. Thank you, Michael. Thanks, Amy. Well, good morning. Welcome to all. Um, we have a very uh, special morning as we welcome uh, General James Cartwright, USMC retired, although Marines really don't retire, I'm told. Uh, known to his friends as Jim and to his closer friends as Haas. Um, when Haas retired uh, in 2011, uh, he had completed practically 40 years of service to our nation. His last assignment was as vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, which is the second highest military position, uh, second highest military position uh, in the United States. So as a member of the JCS, Haas uh, was a very close advisor to the president uh, during a very challenging period in our history, uh, the, the days and years uh, following 9-11. Uh, uh, he's had many command assignments, a, a marine aviator. He's held many important positions in our military, but none perhaps more important than this last assignment. Uh, he worked closely with the president, the vice president, the secretary of defense, and we spent many hours around the tables of the Pentagon uh, working with the secretary and the deputy to uh, respond to the many challenges that our nation has faced and the wars in Iraq, Afghanistan, and, and since. Uh, preparing our military um, for the challenges that we face. 
We're grateful, Haas, that you would join us this morning. We thank you for your many decades of dedicated uh, service to our country. Haas is currently on the board of Raytheon and a couple of other companies as well. He's been a fellow at the Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs at Harvard, uh, spends time here in town at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Please join me in welcoming General Haas Cartwright. This discussion is supposed to be about technology, and I'm trying to make sure I can do the microphone. <laughs> um, it wouldn't. Uh, today it's tough. You, you can't really start something like this without acknowledging 9-11 and all of the things that are going on, obviously, here in town, but around the world, and the people that are out and deployed and first responders, et cetera, and having them close to your heart um, for those that are doing it now and those that have done it you know, for the past 15 to 20 years uh, as we have worked our way through this transition. Um, my task today is to talk about speed of change and the challenges that it brings and, and how to think about um, pacing yourself and what, what the implications are. And It's a little bit, will you tell me the world's history and, and then forecast the world's history in about 10 or 15 minutes. So uh, we'll try to do that. Um, please come on in and, and, and find space wherever you can here. Um, I thought you know, for context, uh, there is a document out there that you can easily get your hands on. Uh, it's published periodically by the National Intelligence Council. What is, you know, if you're in the military, you have to have an acronym, so the NIC, National Intelligence Council. Um, and the current one that's out and about to be replaced is called Alternate Futures 2030. It, it's online, you can get it, but it is probably one of the best products that the Intelligence Council has put out in the last 20 or 30 years that, that looks forward to 2030 and says, here are the mega trends that are likely to occur. Here are the implications of those trends. And then here's a couple of game spoilers that probably you ought to think about also. And so I'll draw heavily uh, on that document to to discuss uh, you know, with you today a little bit about how change is, is affecting us and how it's going to affect us as we go forward. In that document, uh, it starts at the top, like you might expect. And so while we usually loosely use vocabulary that you know, is extreme in nature, um, it starts with what it describes as the existential threats. The existential threats not to the nation, but to us, to the planet, okay? Uh, and there are three. Um, the third one was added in the 90s. Um, two have been there, you know, since the document began. Um, the first of those, as you might expect, is the idea of a pandemic, something that we can't catch up with technically and, and basically goes at life as we know it. Um, and, and potentially it starts to change it um, because we can't get our arms around the problem, okay? Um, the second one, a little less likely, you know, probably more the stuff of science fiction at times, but is the reality, which is um, we live in a shooting gallery. We, the planet Earth. There is stuff out there a lot bigger than we are <laughs> that, that can run into us in the night. <laughs> there is stuff out there that we probably don't understand yet that can change, fundamentally change us. So this idea that we are but one grain out in a very large um, 
universe, whatever that happens to be and however big it actually happens to be. Um, and we are constantly dodging, quite frankly. Um, and we have an atmosphere that's very tolerant, but it is not exclusive of, of large objects coming at us. And so that's the second existential threat. And the third one is this idea of weapons of mass destruction. And that's the one that was introduced in the 90s. Uh, it was interesting to me that they waited until the 90s for all of the Cold War and, and whatnot that went on. But the reality was that whether we were fooling ourselves or not, we in the Soviets believed we could survive a nuclear war. Okay? And that gave some credibility and some weight to the deterrence structure that we built, which was called mutual assured destruction. I'll point a gun at your head, you point one at my head, and therefore we'll be friends. Um, you know, because we can't stand the alternative. Um, and, uh, and so those are the three existential threats that are recognized by the national intelligence community. Um, you could, you could add to that. There are any number of things that people would like to add to that. But quite frankly, those serve to be a good baseline by which you, you navigate. The council also took a look at, you know, um, the likelihood and the, the, the so-called linear extrapolations that, that, that we can make um, in the basics. So for food, we need to increase our production of food globally by 30% in the next 15 years to feed 80% of the planet, 80%, okay? Um, I grew up on a farm in the 50s and 60s, corn, an acre of corn, you really had a good year if you got 100 bushels, okay? Today, it's 200, you know? Um, it needs to get to 300, and it needs to do it in the next 10 to 15 years. Okay. Or you need to invent new land, create new land. Um, and, and we're doing some of that, but that has implications in and of itself. We can make plants grow any place okay. if you've got the water, if you've got the, bio, you know, the biology side of the equation for the soil, etc. But we've got to grow by 30%. Water has to, potable water has to go up by 40% probably an even harder problem. And energy, 50%. Okay. The interesting thing about all three of those is that we control those to, to a large extent. Um, mitigation for getting more water, getting more food, getting more energy is well within our control, and we've been able to pace that problem pretty well um, through time. Okay. There is going to be a point at which that will not be the case. Uh, but, but it is probably not in the next 15 years. Um, but those are, are the, the trends. 30% production in food, 40% increase in potable water, 50% increase in energy reserves. And that, that's just essential to get us through the next 15 years. You look at that and you also see a, a set of challenges that are out there. And I'm going to go at three of them. Understand that you can pick your poison in whatever it is you want to say, okay, this is going to be really bad or this is going to be really good. They're all very interrelated. No one stands on its own. You can be an economist and look at the world through those glasses. You can be a scientist and look through those glasses. It doesn't matter. These things are all interrelated, and so no one of them will stand on their own. But I'll touch on the technology piece first. Um, I'd like to, to get to the migration issue. 
because I think that that's a, a critical issue, and then governance. And then my intent here is to try to wrap this up by about 20 after, and uh, that will be the whole history of the world in predictions. And, and, then, and then we will uh, transition uh, to what it is you want to ask about, okay? And we'll leave a good 20 or 30 minutes to try to, to give it back to you, and, and we'll go in any direction you want to go in doing that. Uh, I think it's really important to understand uh, in context that um, you know, looking at technology, uh, major changes generally occur around changes in communication technology. Societal change tends to follow communication technology. And like I said, I would go back in time. Um, this, this analogy, quite frankly, um, pretty significant, but let's go back a thousand years, okay, to a thousand AD. Right? Um, two inventions heralded in the largest change that changes in society that the earth has known. Okay. I mean, you can go back another thousand and talk about a big one that occurred. Okay. But from a technical standpoint, okay, one was, I'm strapped, printing press in the Bible. Okay. By Gutenberg's work, opened up for those below the the top 1% of the elite that could read, a reason to read, things that they could actually put in their hands to read, and a sharing of knowledge and culture and, and, and norms and behaviors on a global scale that had never been realized before. And you can argue about whether it was Gutenberg and whether it was he that actually put one piece of, you know, type together, etc. But in three places in the world, Northern Africa, Mesopotamia, and China, printing emerged, okay, around 1,000, plus or minus a couple hundred years, <laughs> okay? The other one is not as well known, but is equally important, um, and it's on the math side. But the, the creation and the acknowledgement of the null set or the digit zero, okay, allowed people below that one half of 1% of the elites to actually develop relationships based on math, which really evolved to trade, and allowed us to move in the feudal society to a society that could barter and trade beyond the borders of our community and opened up the world for trade. Okay, And it's usually not given much sway, it too came out of three centers, China, Northern Africa, Mesopotamia, okay, and, and emerged, and everybody claims credit for it, just depending on where you happen to sit at the time, but, but it came, and the fact that it came in three different areas allowed it to be global, allowed it to be commonized in such a way that we could take advantage of it, not just at the extremes, is that me? Sorry. This is coming in. It's a prop. Just a second. <laughs> um, it, it allowed us to, to, to move to a global standard for math, for exchange of goods, for bartering, for trade, etc., in a way that we've never been able to do prior to that. Those two changes were huge. A thousand years. Now move forward a thousand years. 
Okay. Unbelievable computational power. Um, the ability to uh, communicate in ways that really have no regard for borders, property, you know, all of those things that, that limited us in our ability to communicate and to have computational power that's far beyond anything that we ever could have imagined. Okay? You put the two of these together, and then you go back a thousand years again, and you say, okay, what did this do for us? What did it do? Well, we got really wonderful things in the humanities, art, literature, lifestyle, living conditions, norms of behavior, rule of law. Okay. They took four and five hundred years to develop and sometimes more and sometimes you question whether they've developed at all. But, but they have moved forward. And, and trade, etc. All of those pieces have moved forward. And now you come to today where the internet as a communications venue and computational power that is now rivaling our own brains. Okay. When you go back a thousand years, what else came? Well, pandemics, plagues all over the world, migration on a massive scale, mostly out of the urban, out of the, the rural into the urban. Okay. Um, shortages, inability to provide food, shelter, the basic needs of governance to peoples, 30-year war, 100-year war, conflict in order to move from a feudal society into the society that we enjoy today. Okay. So in other words, disruption on a massive scale, undermining of norms and behavior and power centers and all of those things occurred. And there's no reason not to expect that that's not going to occur now. And that some simple conflict or some simple enemy will be the solution to the challenges that we have today. No forecast talks less in the intelligence world or in my world uh, less than 50 to 100 years. Okay. That's what we've got in front of us because this is so destabilizing, so challenging to the things that we, our core beliefs and the way and the structure in which we live. Okay. Conflict is going to be an essential part of our history and life going forward. There's just no way around it. I forgot one caveat at the beginning. When you forecast the future, you will be wrong. Okay, I mean, you're going to be wrong. But it's going to be hard to figure out a context in which this is not likely to be the case, especially looking around us today. It's just going to be tough. Okay. And so the idea that there is going to be wonderful things that come out of these, and we're seeing all of that. We're seeing so much of it today. It's unbelievable what we can do in medicine, what we can do in other technologies, communication, transportation, energy, etc. We're pacing the need of the planet to remain a viable ecosystem. At least we've been able to thus far. And that's great. 
um, I, the story I tell from a military standpoint is going into the, the conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan, the basis of medical treatment on the battlefield was called triage. We invented that in the Civil War. Okay. From the Civil War till now, we went from about expectation, once we put triage in place in the Civil War, of a, of a wounded person walking into a, ba a battlefield station and being successfully treated was about 30%. That 30%. The rest, we're just not going to make it. We just didn't have the technology, the ability to do it. The best we ever did with triage was about 60%. So in other words, 60% of the people that walked in were going to survive. That's the best we ever did. We moved to a different standard during our time called an hour to live. It was a fundamentally different standard. It acknowledged that even as much as I loved MASH and the show, the likelihood of having the right kind of doctor and the right skill set against the injury that was going to walk through that door, the injuries that were going to walk through that door, was very low in triage. Okay? You just weren't going to have the burn expert, or you weren't going to have the leg expert, or you pick it. Okay? When we changed that scale and said, wait a minute, trying to make that match doesn't work. Let's get the doctors off the battlefield. Let's let them be at Mass General or wherever they want to be. And let's bring them in in a different construct virtually. Okay, let them see the patient, tell somebody what to do about it, get them patched up, and then get them back to where they can actually be matched up with a with a uh, expert. Okay, we're working somewhere between 93 and 95 percent survivability. Okay, great stuff, great stuff. Precision weapons, much the same thing. So you look at today's battlefield in Iraq and Afghanistan, and these are the first two wars in the history of the world in which the populations grew. There are significant implications to that. Okay. Those populations are growing, particularly the male 17 to 33, the testosterone belt. Now, I mean, that population is still growing, growing at a rate faster than any place else in what we would call non-third world countries. Okay. It's fundamentally changing the demographic. Okay. And it has a fundamental implication about how we handle that generation, how we handle um, conflict as we move forward today, because it's, it is not what it was to, in the past. Okay. Um, you know, if you take a look at World War I, World War II, our civil war, how how deadly those were, okay? and how they fundamentally changed the demographic of our country. Okay? It's, it's not, not working that way anymore. Okay? And I'm not advertising that we go back to that by any stretch of the imagination, but it is fundamentally different, and it is causing us challenges. Okay? Um, so technology, the disruptors in technology, the idea that technology will have a fundamental role to play as we go forward, and will disrupt what we think we are comfortable with. The last piece in technology I'll talk to is not today, but is now and as we go forward, well demonstrated out there. But this partnering of man and machine, okay? Today we can use the dirty word drone, okay? But it's a reality everywhere you look. Um, a good statistic is every year that this nation has been a country since the Civil War, 
Okay? When, we, when we became an industrial society over an agrarian society, production in the industrial sector has grown every year. Okay? Every year. That's not what you would believe if you listen to who's employed and who's not employed. And that's the disruptor. Company that I'm associated with now opened a new factory, okay, um, heralded by all in the local area. Okay. It's a massive factory, produces large amounts of equipment, physical equipment. We're on the high side with 33 employees. Okay. Don't turn the lights on except for tours. It's all robotic. Okay. It is the shift from the idea of a person and a machine partnering, farming, driving your car, etc., to the idea of a person and many machines. Okay? It's a complete flip-flop. It's not a crew per ship, a crew per airplane, a crew per tank. It is the other way around. It is tanks per crew. Okay? The implications societally are huge. I mean, the left behind generation right now is the third generation, so to speak. Normally in large organizations, you have three generations, the entry level, the middle level, and the senior level. Okay? Senior and middle have been left behind. Senior can fend for itself. Middle is not necessarily so advantaged. Okay? The, the most disturbing trend in the Nick report was the growth of the middle class globally, and the lack of resource associated with that growth. So if you look at Northern Africa, if you look at the, you know, the, the conflicts that have gone on there, the conflicts that are going on now in Syria, in, place, in Afghanistan, in Iraq, etc., we automatically go to, okay, this is poor, un, un, uneducated, not. This, these people are educated, and governance has broken a promise that governance had with them, which is to say that when I was a kid, my grandfather would say to me, if you're willing to work, you'll be okay. My dad said to me, if you're willing to work and get educated, you'll be okay. Both those promises have been broken. These people that are in these conflicts today, the demographic is a college education. It is not uneducated. Okay? Not necessarily across all of them, but it is not what most people would think. Okay? These are people that are educated, are reading, are connected with the world, have, have access to huge computational power, and are now basically finding themselves, with all of that in their hands, unable to feed and house their families. Can't do it. They just can't make it. Migration. One of the big issues you know, that goes on globally, and you can go back 1,000, 2,000, you can even go back a lot further than that. Migration tends to be something that changes the demographic, fundamentally shifts the mores and the, and the, the customs and whatnot, disrupts societies um, more than anything else, quite frankly, that we have out there. People would automatically go to war on that issue. I mean, in other words, say war is what d disrupts the world. It's not. It's migration. Okay? Migration because of war is actually the smallest case of migration and the least temporal. In other words, for the least amount of time, if you displaced because of a war, you're likely to go home after the war. Okay? 
migration because of climate is the longest and tends to be permanent okay, because it is associated with loss of arable land, loss of the ability to support an ecosystem with energy, water, and food. And therefore, people are forced to migrate in order to, get, to, to keep going. And, and the normal reaction to migration is the integration of these different sectarian, racial, etc. boundaries causes conflict. Okay. We go through the stages of mourning when it occurs. We go denial. <coughs> then we get angry. Okay. And acceptance is usually many years and several generations down the road. When a society ages as a norm, as the mean age, somewhere up in the late 30s, early 40s, it generally gets to a point where it cannot sustain itself and becomes vulnerable to migration and becomes a target because there are less people consuming the resources that are available and therefore there are available resources. Okay? I mean, it's just, it's, it's a chain, it's a circle, <laughs> um, but you have to acknowledge it. Um, the exception in the world thus far has been this country. We're somewhere around 43, 44. Okay? And it is because of our immigration policy that we have remained vibrant. <coughs> I would be the first to raise my hand and say, let's make sure that the immigration policy that we're trying to move ourselves towards has its eye on the right target. If it is on a denial target, then all of the things that this country stood for that made it great and made it get to where it is are going to be at risk. That's kind of point number one. Because the people in your society who are most likely to take risk, their own personal risk, to benefit the society are immigrants. They've already decided that they're willing to risk all. And when they come to a new society, they have a fundamentally different risk calculus. The migration out of Africa into Europe has already dropped the mean age by about five years okay, of a very old society. It's hugely disruptive. Today, it's disruptive. A thousand years from now, it may be what saved them. But it, you can't see that today. Okay? And, and so, you know, we have to think about where we sit. We obviously will put ourselves and our families first. But the reality here is that we're going to have to find a way to assimilate rather than enter into a 100-year war. Okay. We're going to have to find ways to reform and be of institutions that are willing to reform. Okay. I'm, I'm part of the Marine Corps. Change is great as long as it doesn't affect me. You know, uh, That's hard. That's hard culturally to get beyond. It really is difficult to, to get ourselves to a point where we can say, wait a minute, I, I know I could actually do okay here. Um, you know, how am I going to react? How am I going to handle this? Okay, am I going to build a wall between the United States and Mexico? That's not to say that that's not going to happen. It's not to say that we ought not to think about those things. It isn't to say that we shouldn't debate publicly and have a clear understanding of why we have the immigration policy that we have. Okay. But make sure that we do the soul searching 
and the, the reforming internally to have a culture that matches where we want to end up. Okay? Um, one of the things that always scared me the most was, you know, whenever you had a problem, an accident or somebody did something wrong or whatever it was, we need to go back to basics. Going back does not move you forward. <laughs> okay? It never does. Okay? You, you know, you have to think about where you're going to go, and it's uncharted. And the older we get, this is the demographic, the less we're likely to take risk and the less we're able to manage risk that we do take. And it's, just a, it's just a fact of life. And so we have to be cognizant of that. Um, I did a, um, a tour as an engineer um, in the Naval Air Systems Command. In that tour, we built the F-18. I was part of that team, uh, one of our frontline strike fighters. It was the first really digital airplane. Okay? We, we waited seven years to tell the pilots that the stick was not connected to the flight controls. <laughs> they, just, they culturally couldn't have handled it. We had to turn off 50% of the software in that seven years because clearly numbers versus needles, numbers would never work. You couldn't see trend. You wouldn't be able to read it quickly. You couldn't comprehend what the numbers meant. You need a needle. We had to draw needles until in the three-generation construct, the third generation coming in, which we at the time, the, the airplane was called the Hornet. We called Hornet babies. But they grew up in front of controls and whatnot that were not connected to flight controls, et cetera, that, that just told a computer how much you wanted something, okay? And then the computer decided what you really meant and did, went <laughs> off and did its own thing. But, but it, it took years, okay? It took three generations to get that airplane to fly the way we actually had designed it to fly because culturally we were just not ready to do it, okay? What we did learn out of that quite frankly, was that continual education was as important as episodic education. And in the military, we had this wonderful system of education lauded by all. For a 30-year career, you went to school three different times for nine months at a stint. Okay? And that kept you current. Okay? Department of Education today says that in three years, 40% of what you learned in the first of the three years is irrelevant by the time you get to the fourth year. I mean, you can't just go on experience. And, and certainly in talking to new generals and admirals and whatnot, I'd say, okay, this is what you're going to have to deal with. You need to go to school. Your inbox is not what is determining how good you are. Okay? You have to keep going to school. You have to keep educating yourself. And the penalty for not doing it is everybody around you will know you stopped except you. The people that you're charged to lead will know that you are disconnected. Okay? Continuing education. I mean, that is the fundamental shift that is going on out there in, in the education system, and it is absolutely essential if you want to remain competitive. The key attribute for correlation of climate change is surface temperature. Okay? That is the key correlation to migration. That's why we've made such a big deal about climate change. Okay? Syria is a classic uh, scenario for climate change. Five years of drought and temperature rise prior to the conflict breaking out. The loss of about 25% of the arable land. 
the loss of, of the ability to provide potable water in that land for that land. Okay. And that's only getting worse. Okay. And the conflict that arises out of it really started in the middle class, not in the lower class. Okay. Has continued in the middle class, um, but threatens the upper class the most. It's a textbook climate change conflict um, by any, any measure. Okay? And the likelihood that it will be resolved by eliminating one adversary or another or one leader or another is zero. Okay? This is 30 years minimum. Okay? When I was asked, okay, what would you do? And I said, okay, well, first thing I would do is set the expectation that you're dealing with 20 to 30 years like we dealt with 60 years post-World War II. And you're now getting in the right frame of mind. Totally an unacceptable answer. Man, we want things done now. We want to identify an event and say it's over. This is not going to happen. Okay. Um, it's just... It, it is going to be difficult, and you can extrapolate that around. The, the things that were unique, you know, in the Middle Ages, in moving from feudalism over into a, you know, a, a, a global order, so to speak, of democracy, things that were, were unique were that there was no one kind of conflict that could be predicted. There was civil strife. There was regional strife. There were global fights. Man, there is not one kind of conflict that's going to come out of this. And so to say it's going to be terrorism or it's going to be you know, um, some sort of infiltration or asymmetric warfare, which means that it's not what you want it to be, uh, you know, it's going to be very, very brutal. It escalates over the years. So when you get rid of ISIS, the next one will be far more brutal than this one. Okay? Because it's the only way they feel that they can get your attention that you understand the, the depth with which they believe they have been shorted okay, by governance. And so governance, the last piece. Okay. The loss of, ex, the lack of expectation. All of these things that I've talked about, whether you talk existential, whether you talk technical, or whether you talk migratory, all have venues by which you can do mitigation well within our capability. But the competition for resources to do that mitigation is the first problem. The second problem is the cultural bias to dedicate the resources to it. In other words, why do I want to have more potable water? I've got plenty of water. Why would I think about that as a problem? Okay. Why would I worry about how much arable land? I get everything I need at the grocery store. Okay. How do you get particularly that third generation, that senior generation, to acknowledge that the world is fundamentally changing, that the vectors that it is, that it is running against are, are going to have sway in some way. Okay. So government leaders trying to get, bring the people along, trying to move the people in a direction that to some extent will be counter to where they want to go personally okay, is the challenge. And if we believe the election process that we're going through right now is an anomaly, then count yourself in the denial stage. <laughs> this, is, this is the reality. This is an expression of the frustration 
okay, in our country, in many countries around the world. Okay. Governance and the tools for governance in order to stay ahead of the game. In the feudal societies, the tools of those, those leaders, those monarchs and those little feudal kingdoms, ran out. They couldn't provide for the people. Okay? They just ran out. The, the construct of the governance structure ran out. It's moving in that direction now. Okay? Maybe not because of anything we did. Maybe because we did it wrong. But climate change and, and conflict, etc., are going to be a norm, not an aberration. And until we get to that understanding and then start to be willing to take the hard steps to change the construct, uh, we'll stay in conflict. Now, the hope is we're so well-educated, we understand the world, and we're so, you know, eh, you know, maybe, I hope. You know. um, so, I painted such a rosy picture <laughs> for all of you. Um, but, but uh, you know, this is, this is the challenge that we face. And the pace of that change, the implications of that change, this world that we are entering into with pervasive communications, computational power far greater than our own human mind. And this idea that we are now partnering with machines, not driving them, directing them, etc. These are all the realities that are going to un undermine many of the concepts that we have about how we relate inside the world. And so that's the challenge that we have going forward. I'm happy to go in any direction you'd like to go. I've tried to stimulate you in about as many as I could in the short amount of time, but um, please question and answer it is, is open. Yes, sir. I, I took uh, baby. Biology 101 in 1949, and uh, they were telling us then that the, one of the hopes for the future world was to evolve smaller people. <laughs> <laughs> Most of the um, move us in a direction that is getting larger, okay? Um, and what we're finding is that that is having a significant negative effect on the basic skeletal structure that we have and the ability to sustain that and the heart to sustain it and everything else. And so probably not smaller. I mean, the only place that that seems to be true today is North Korea, and that's not the reason that you want to go to it. Um, you know, so... You know, likely no, um, but it will be interesting as we make this transition um, where factories are 20, 30 people, where farming is four people per thousand acres. I mean, it is going to change our physical structure, I and mean, we will adapt. Now, the other question that you kind of edge at here a little bit is the genetic question and splicing and some of the, the, the things that are going on right now and what implications those will have. And um, I think that's another huge bridge we're going to have to, to cross uh, and work our way through. Um, it's not going to go away. The question is how do we manage it and, and, and why. Linda. Thank you. Um, so, so that was such a rosy picture. I, I would like to... Larry made a good sermon this morning where the power of the message of hope mm -hmm. and the difference it made in a person's life. And, you know, knowing all this and so eloquently portrayed it, how, how do we have hope? 
Yeah, um, the, the, the underpinning message here is if you remove the hope, if you take away my ability to feed my family and house my family, you really leave me with no alternative. Okay? The question is how do I create hope for you in such a way that you can be productive in that desire to improve and you have an, abs you have an outlet by which to funnel your energy and, and, and make things better. And technology is doing a wonderful job along those lines today. The question is we're, we're starting to leave individual generations out in that technical um, in environment. And so people get disadvantaged because they feel like they can't go back and get the new skill of the next generation. And that, wait a minute, I paid for my college education. In fact, I'm in debt for my college education. And you're telling me I got to get going and get more. I can't afford it. I can't get there. I haven't squared some of these issues. The opportunity for mitigation and climate change and education and things like that is really well within our grasp. It's just that we have to, as a society, embrace it. And, and go after it um, and, and to embrace the opportunity to raise people up and give them the opportunity. The thing that, that, you know, and I'm sure from Mike and anybody else who's served in military or large organizations, I mean, when you leave, it's not that you left the job. It's the people. It's the interaction. It's the, it's the bonding that you get in doing that. Okay? We can't forget that. We can't leave it out, and we have to be inclusive on it. Um, the world is going to change. It, you know, there's no way around that. But how do you find that ability to do it? And, and quite frankly, this is the venue to find it. It is a venue that is, talks about what we believe in, what we're willing to sacrifice to do for each other. Um, you see it on the battlefield all the time. And, and um, often asked about this, you say, okay, how do you find hope? How do these young 19-year-olds that we've thrown in harm's way, how do they find hope? Just ask them what it's like to walk down the street and see the kids. That's, that's where they get it. I mean, that's where the energy is. That's the drive. And I can talk to you for hours about sharing a foxhole with somebody and what that does for you psychologically. But quite frankly, talk to these young people that are out there today that have lived now for 15 years in constant war. It is the children and the ability to reach out and help those children and protect them, huddle them in close and hide them in a building, whatever it takes to help the children survive. And then go build a school on your off time. I mean, the one thing I never had a problem doing was finding a soldier who wasn't willing to go help build a school. Okay, I took uh, uh, squadrons to a place called Aviano, Italy during the Bosnia conflict. And I found out that there was a chaplain assigned to the Vatican that was a military officer. And so I went and found the guy. And I said, what can we do? He said, I got, I got orphanages all over the place from this battle. I said, point them out. Never had trouble finding troops to go build those orphanages, clean them out, help them get set up, help them run, adopt the kids. I mean, it was phenomenal what you could do there. Um, that's where the hope is. The hope is our love of each other and our willingness to put ourselves out there on the line over that. Sir. Uh, in these analyses looking forward, uh, to what degree did the issue of religious strife come up? We see in the Middle East one of the big issues is it's, a, it's like our Reformation going back 500 years exactly. ago. Sunni, I'm right, or Shia, I'm more right than yeah. you are. Yeah. And then the turn to the issue. Muslim-Christian relations. 
it's a whole flare-up again, and I'm curious to how that was looked at, if at all. It was looked at very, very heavily. I mean, it, to not address that issue and not to understand that issue is to walk onto the battlefield and not understand your adversary and why they're there. Okay. And, and the question is, historically, what it has taken to bring those things together and to find common ground has been the loss of life. Is there an alternative approach to this? Can I start to do mitigation issues about water and land and, and food and whatnot in such a way that that becomes a, a more viable approach to solving the problem? You know, and the most powerful people on the battlefield in Afghanistan today are the provincial reconstruction teams. And the most um, important people in those reconstruction teams, I'm not saying that you and I are elderly, but it's our generation sharing their lifelong knowledge with the people of the country, how to farm, how to, how to do government, how to doctor, how to, how to run a business. I mean, if there were to be a draft today, the draft I would ask for is quietly in our generation because we have the most to offer for the problem that's actually out there. I mean, I, we don't need soldiers pulling triggers. We need people to help them find an alternative way out of these, these, these challenges. The military is the Peace Corps. And well, I mean, not, not yeah, yeah. But but service service to the country shouldn't be in a you know five year window. It really ought to be thought of more holistically. Because quite frankly, we could do a lot more than we're doing today for the problems we actually have. Way in the back. So you spoke about how the population has grown in Iraq and Afghanistan yep. during conflict. What what is the impact on how long the conflict lasts when that occurs? Goes longer. Goes longer. And it's more deadly. Um, yeah, that's the problem uh, because the resources then are not relieved. The, the finding of common ground is stretched out over a longer period of time because the loss is not, as we would measure it, is not, is not realized sooner. So it, it, it prolongs the conflict. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. What can happen? What are all these people going to do? Yeah. This is the challenge that we have. One is retraining. So, you know, going at it from that construct. Uh, the other is the typical stages of grief. In other words, we're going to get to anger. Um, we're, we've kind of passed through. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so, you know, some people would say, okay, we've got to get rid of the machines. Well, that's not going to work. Okay, that, that, that's not going to work either. And so how do you find the right partnership? And then in a societal construct where life is the most precious aspect, how do we manage the expectations of how much? Um, and there are several open issues out there, questions that are going to challenge us. Um, one of the companies that I'm you know, spending a, a lot of time with right now um, is uh, Tesla SpaceX. Um, should we, in fact, start to think about populating another planet? What are the implications? What goes from this one to that one? But in a world where that is technically possible, and it's not yet, 
um, do we start to think about that as, an, as the expansion of society and the expansion of our existence? I, you know, I mean, there are an awful lot of people as far back as Einstein who have said this is the only logical course for mankind. Is you're going to have to grow someplace. Um, we're not going to raise our hands. And we've seen experiments in countries where we have limited, you know, uh, population. And that's not worked well at all. So I don't know. And I, I can't tell you that another planet's the answer. At times, you know, that's like, okay, <laughs> that's way out there. Well, not necessarily so far, but why would we want to do that? And, and then what resource are we willing to put against it to see if it is, in fact, feasible and possible, et cetera? And so, um, I mean, the blessing that we have right now is we have some entrepreneurs in the world who are willing to spend their own money on end a disease, find a cure for, go look for another planet. Um, I mean, bless them for that. I'm glad that they're doing that. But um, we, we're going to have to come to grips with that question because it's a tough one. I think they're going to boot us here pretty quick. But okay. My experience was truth because people don't want to hear a lot of it. Yeah. You've already told too much truth. Mm -hmm. But you didn't go far enough. I mean, the obvious solution of what you're talking about was the reduction of population. And either that's going to happen by an ugly way or we're going to make some kind of government sector. On this planet, yes, uh, the only logical solution to these problems is a reduction in population. Um, maybe, but I mean, whether we look at another planet, whether we certainly—it's certainly for us, the United States, was the answer to our problem, which was we were living in a plague-infested, overpopulated urban environment in Europe. We moved to America. We didn't have money, but we had separation and space. And that kept the disease problem to an absolute minimum. It uh, gave us resource for water and food, etc., that others in the world didn't have at the time. Okay. Um, but to manage that population with a civil war, and with, I mean, there's got to be a better way. Uh, you know, and that's why I chased for Smaller people. <laughs> Take up less space, yeah. You made reference to the unrest in Syria, but also in the region, how it's being driven by educated young people who just don't have opportunities because governments aren't meeting their needs. I think going back to 9 11 and the weeks and months and years after 9 11, the Bush administration with a set of policies based on the idea that the U.S. had kind of made a bad bargain by supporting European governments in the region, that while there may have been good reasons at the time, we were sort of locked into these relationships with these governments that were producing stability rather than stability. Do you think that was the right insight? And if so, what tools do we really have to do? Because it seems like we, are, we still are in these relationships with these governments that are meeting the needs of their people. Yeah, I, I think that the trap that you tend to fall into then is to say, be like me, okay, and assume that you <laughs> are the only right answer to a problem. Um, and, and even if your intentions are the best, um, it's difficult. It's difficult to portray that onto someone else. The normal cultural reaction is to, to, to go away from it. So I, I don't, I'm not going to fault history. Um, on this, but um, there has to be a way for us to become tolerant of different views. 
Okay? And there's all sorts of science that says that if you are, you have a far better society, number one, and you're far more likely to find viable paths forward than not. Um, that, that's always, and yet that is so contrary to human nature. If I walk into your office and say the sky is falling in your industry, here's the worst thing that could happen, and it's happening to us today, what's the first thing that people do? They throw everybody out except for the close. Okay. They eliminate the diversity of opinion, reduce the number of options to consider, and they isolate themselves. That's human nature. You know, so how do you work yourself to a point where you start to understand that you're far likely, far more likely to be successful on that day if you are inclusive and you're tolerant and you're willing to listen to something that wasn't your idea? Okay. I mean, that, that's the hard part here. And so we're working against our own, you know, uh, biases um, and our own human nature in many of these situations. And that's the tough part because we want to impose that on you. You know, we want to say, well, if you're more like me and, oh, this is a real problem, I got the answer. Okay? And I'm going to hire and I'm going to train and I'm going to teach you all to be like me. <laughs> it is really counter to where the strength actually is. Yes, sir. Yeah. Uh, other than can you think of any uh, individuals or groups in the legislature, in the executive branch, or military who are operating on the basis of the assumptions you posited? Um, I think there's a general understanding out there of, I don't want to call it root causes, but the underlying stressors that are facing our society, our global society, okay? There's a lot of denial that it's a facing us. It's got to be about somebody else. Um, that's pretty prevalent, unfortunately. Um, but there are some, I mean, what the Gates Foundation has done in Africa is just unbelievable with disease and, and, and whatnot. And, and what other education foundations have done with, with bringing, you know, bringing education up. And all of these are very positive signs and very hopeful signs of a, of a, of a generation that is coming and a generation that's out there that are that are trying to mitigate at the very least the likelihood of something going horribly wrong. <laughs> Mike. <laughs> no, I mean there are a lot of I, that's this is not foreign thought. Uh, by any stretch of imagination, but oftentimes, like an extremist, when somebody walks into your office and says it's, it's terrible outside, um, the in basket, the the now, trumps the. Let's sit down and think about where we're going and what what does this journey look like? And every step that we take, can we can we measure it against an end state that we believe is realistic? That's the tough part. That's well, really I tough. Take, I take a few minutes to thank Hoss and his wife Sandy for being mm -hmm. here. We really appreciate your perspective. This program year is just about that, trying to bring in speakers that will be provocative, that will help us think about these complicated issues, and to bring our Christian principles to the table as we uh, interact in our various positions and our jobs. So thank you for your time with us. Thank you so much for, for coming out. Thank you.